super high efficiency, a very simple, robust quality design. Um, and almost the one model was produced from the T-model Ford from 1908 to 1927. And in the end, 50 million cars were produced from the Ford production line. Now, Ford designed this car in such a way that it was um, modular. It could be a ute, it could be a truck, it could be a van, it could be a tractor. And whatever changes he made to it, whatever improvements when they brought in the electric starter model from the crank handle, it was always upgradable. So every T model was upgradable from one to the next. Um, so you think of brilliant sort of social design. His idea was that everyone, you know, had dubious political views, but his idea was that everyone who, you know, as many people as could could afford the car, and they had it for their entire lifetime. Now, in a fully unsaturated market, okay, there were no cars. Um, there was lots of people to buy cars, and he made an affordable product. It was a brilliant strategy. In 1924, the production line produced two million models a year. But by 1927, something had happened that no one had expected. Um, and what had happened is that all of a sudden the market became saturated. So everyone who could afford to buy a T-model had already bought one. And because they were upgradable, they weren't having changed, they were made to be long-lasting and serviceable, there was no need for anyone to buy a new T-model Ford and production just crashed. Um, and this is where a new model comes in, a model um, from General Motors, a new logic for it. Um, and this was set up by um, Alfred Sloan, who General Motors up to that time, I will come to the building school, but I'm just giving sort of a preamble. General Motors had up to that time been buying up companies sort of willy-nilly, so they bought, they had Chevrolet, they had Oldsmobile, they had Pontiac, they had Cadillac, um, and a sweep of others. And they were all competing with each other, and what Alfred Sloan then did was to build a brand architecture, placing the Cadillac at the top, saying that's going to be a prestige car that everyone aspires to, and the Chevrolet at the bottom um, and that's the affordable model, that's the entry model that people buy into. And then you had Pontiac and Oldsmobile and other brands moving up the brand architecture scale. The other thing that he introduced was to bring in the idea of styling and the idea of the yearly model chain. So unlike Ford, remember 1908 to 1927, the same model. General Motors said, no, we're going to bring out a new model every year. We want to entice customers to buy a new car every year. And he hired um, Harley Earl, who was a coach builder and stylist for the Hollywood superstars in, in Los Angeles. So he designed the cars for the superstars. The superstar wouldn't go to the shop and buy an off-the-market car. They would, um, they would have it designed for them by a boutique designer such as Harley Earl. And Harley Earl then... For uh, police to go by. No, no, that's fine. That's that's absolutely. Yeah. Okay, I'll try and be quick with my little story here. Um, Holly Hill brought in these ideas of, of 
styling gimmicks really and every year they would change them and, and what they would do is um, they would also the, the really the brilliance of the strategy was that they would have a, a show model at a car show that no one could afford and they'd bring in all their styling cliches of fins and torpedo bumpers and um, perspex roofs and no one could buy that model okay? that was unattainable but then the Cadillac would have a number of those features so you can't have the, the desired object but you can buy the Cadillac and then down the hierarchy it would trickle down after four years the Chevrolet would have all the features of the Cadillac but by that time the Cadillac had moved on and I've got a picture here which you probably can't see but this is a 1958 Cadillac in 1956, I, I brought in this the same year as the, the Braun radio there. And we see things and lots of chrome and air scoops and computer bumpers and so on. Now, they all form no functional basis at all. They're all styling cliches. They're to entice the buyer to buy. Now, you can say this is a good model because it stimulates production. It means that after one year, there's a lot of second-hand mobile cars on the road that are basically brand new that people can afford. But to the people from the old school, this idea was abhorrent. The idea that there was um, sort of trickery going on um, to, to induce people into consumption. Um, so. Okay, so here we have the concept that now an object is located within a system. Okay, you see the system of consumption, the system of production, the system of economics. And John Baudrillard, the um, sort of design theorist and philosopher, um, or theorist, speaks of the system of objects, the commodification of everyday life. Um, so that all, these are my thoughts, not John's, that all objects are designed within a system for a system and if you take the object out of the system, be it a matter of time or the system, so the system changes, or you put it into a different system, then the meanings and symbolism changes. So to understand the design of an object, the motivations, ideas, intent, meaning, one must be mindful of the system it was designed in and for. We cannot evaluate the design according to our, um, to, our, to a different system that we find ourselves in now. So if you look at the Cadillac, um, okay, so this was from the jet age. Um, it was from sort of rockets, you know, just entering space, the space race. And so all this sort of symbolism was built into this. And this is what made it very um, poignant at the time. If we look at it now, it, it no longer had, had holds any of those. It, it holds nostalgia value um, and it says other things. So this idea that design can have a social political dimension is, is not new. Um, for example, when Melbourne was planned in the 1830s, then Governor, who was actually Governor of New South Wales, Gibbs, insisted that all towns laid out during his term of office should have no public squares included within their boundaries. Um, being convinced that they only encouraged democracy Okay, so kids didn't want democracy, hence why Melbourne never had a city square. It was a deliberate act. Um, of course, the Ulmers, on the other hand, wanted to encourage democracy. 
Um, so I told you almost this idea of manufacturing and manipulating social relationships for economic gain was the antithesis to what they were trying to achieve. Um, and to understand this reaction more thoroughly, we need to understand the origins of the old um, school, the Hochschule für Gestaltung, and in German that is high school or high learning place, university for Gestaltung. Gestaltung, I can't really translate that word. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. So Inga Scholl, she was the sister of Hans and Sophie Scholl in the White Rose Resistance Group, um, who were executed by the Nazi regime, so one of the more well-known resistance groups against the Nazis. And she founded a foundation in, in honour of her siblings. And she um, teed up with Otto Eichler and Max Bill. Max Bill um, was a Swiss artist and um, also a sculptor and then moved into design. He was at the architecture, he designed the the Ulm School, the, the architecture for it, but he was never an architect, he was actually an artist. Um, and when they began, originally their intention was not clearly to set up a design school, um, but it was to found an institute to explore social political questions as a contribution to a new democratic education. So Germany had just come out of the Second World War. It was 1946-47 when the, the Ulm School, the ideas started brewing away. Um, and so they think, well, what sort of place can we build to, to rebuild our society? In the end, it was decided to focus on um, the design problems of the industrial society of the future. So that was really their aim. And post-1945, it was not so much the idea of reconstruction, of reconstructing Germany, but of a new construction. How do you construct a new Germany? And, and more so, how do you construct a new society? And I must say that right from the start, the Ulm School was highly international. Half, or even more than half of its students were international students, and most of its, the people who taught there were not German as well, or many of them were German. Um, so it was about optimism, utopianism, a new start, and an attempt to overcome the crippling burden of history. Um, Guy um, Bonsieppi, who was um, one of the, strange enough, he is a German, he was a name like Guy Bonsieppi, um, he ended up going to Brazil. He was one of the students and then later a teacher there. And, and he sort of, a quote from him is, people believed in the potential of the here and now that some sort of social catharsis was possible. Um, the possibilities of social change, the process of democratizing Germany from the top down. Um, so, and this thing in terms of education and enlightenment. And the idea that democratization was not limited just to the product culture, I mean the idea was to create democratic objects. Um, but also was right down through the structure of the school. So the school was um, in large part or part run, even before it's opened, by students. And they played a critical role in running the school, in running the administration and making the decisions. And you know, institution like today's universities, this is un unthinkable. Thus what was proposed and eventuated was a humanist education for designers. And this went beyond the Bauhaus model 
of master and workshop laboratory to include a much broader education, so this idea of enlightenment education, of philosophy, psychology, cultural studies, and later as we'll see there's mathematics, there's cybernetics, there's semiotics, um, there's systems theory, and so on. So the Ulm School was a hothouse of intellectual activity, and over 200 intellectuals passed through its doors. Um, thinkers, theorists, many prominent, such as Max Benz, the scientist, philosopher, logician, semiologist, or semiotics, um, and aesthetic theorist. And Hart's wicked problem, Rittle, um, originally a um, physicist and mathematician, and later a design theorist. And, and Horst Rittle, who was very important at the Ulm School, coined the term wicked problems. This comes from the idea of systems thinking. Um, okay, so all this sort of activity, of course, was bound to cause vigorous debate and arguments. Um, and out of the centres grew intellectual debate, dissent, test beds for new ideas, interactions, and interventions. Um, and over the short lifespan of the school, that only went from 53 to 68, um, it would change directors on a regular basis, almost often on a yearly basis. Um, so there's really two Ulm models. So we talk about the Ulm model, which is the model of how do you, how do you build a design education and how do you build a design method, um, and what could this be? The, the first really comes from Max Bill, who was the, the Swiss um, painter and, and sculptor, um, he was a concrete artist, um, and he was the first director from 53 to 56, was probably the longest lived one, but he started right at 1950. And um, in his words, I began my work at Erwin, um looking at the further development of the Bauhaus idea. Okay, so the task he set himself was one, how to make a new culture, and to the ability that design can only, how, how does design and culture and society and technology and art become integrated? And his idea that it, um, design can only come through an aesthetic education. Um, he did very much believe in design as social responsibility, ecology and economy, and, and they were really talking about ecological ideas then. Um, and the idea is that considered goods need to democratise society. Okay, so this idea between the object and society become a, a overall democracy and that goods can play a part in this. Um, but soon, you know, within a few years, to many at Ulm, they became deeply dissatisfied with the dialectics of intuition. So Max Bell was an artist and very much believed in this idea of designer's intuition, of the artist's intuition. And new fields were explored, such as those of cybernetics, systems thinking, and so on. Okay, the second Ulm model in 1956 um, really began with the directorship or, or vector of Thomas Maldonado, um, and he was an Argentinian. He was an Argentinian artist at first. He was very active in the avant-garde in Argentina. He was um, fascinated with the the Russian constructivism and a lot of the Russian constructivists came to Argentina via Berlin um, because of the exodus from, from the Nazi regime 
and, and he then became involved with that. And from constructivism, it led him to the interest in industrial production, which is really what the constructivists also concern themselves with. And um, he ended up going to Switzerland to work with Maxville in this idea of concrete, of a concrete art. Um, and in, in 19, but more so than that, by 1950 already, he was concerning himself increasingly with the ideas surrounding semiotics, behaviorism, um, influenced by people such as Charles Pierce, Charles W. Morris, Rudolf Carnap, and in particular Max Benz, who was at, at um, the Ulm School. So much of what we call the Vienna Circle. And he wrote a, an article in the Ulm magazine, Ulm had his own magazine, on semiotics. And this led him then to, to come to Ulm School. Um, Thomas took a much more rationalist theoretical approach. Um, and the Ulmers wanted to devise a decisive method for design. So rather than being based on artist intuition, there was actually a, a method. Um, and design was now being understood as a team project, that the designer only plays a small, an important but a small part in the whole thing. Um, so here we have Ripple's wicked problem approach. So a system design, design that consisted of, of complex problems that are social, cultural, political, economic, commercial, operational, logistical, technical. If we remove any one of these components, it becomes exponentially simpler. But within design, we can't. And that's what makes design such a complex act. Um, so they began to explore fields of decision-making, problem-solving. How do you approach the act of design? Um, so in very broad terms, the, the Ulm school took modernity from the last phase of the Bauhaus with Max Bill and carried it from abstraction forward to systemization. And, and that's just really where I want to um, now start talking about these ideas about systemization. And so you can see that from, um, I'll talk a little bit about later in, in architecture as well, the idea of cell structures um, and within design. So design as a system of decision making, of analysis and um, of thinking. Um, Okay, so I want to explore some of these ideas. I'll have to go over here. Um, and yeah. this is the Ulm Hocker. It was probably one of the earliest things to come out of the Ulm School. Um, was designed primarily by Max Bill, but also by um, a number of the others at the school. And when you first look at it, um, and when I first saw the Ulm Hocker, I just thought, well, with big book, what's so special about this? 1955, yeah? 1955, we think, well, if I was told it was 1917, I might be a little bit more impressed. But you cannot judge design like this from that initial reaction. You actually have to, again, judge why it was designed and what it was designed for and the logic behind it and the system within which it fits. So it wasn't designed as a commercial item for commercial production. It was designed 
for the for the Ulm School for the students and teachers to sit on. And and Martin explained this really nicely. And um, curated this exhibition. And it was designed to be produced by the workshops of the university. So the idea is it can be a school when the students sit at their table, um, a little bit lower when they're in a circle having a conversation. Each student had one of these. They didn't have, every room didn't have the school, the hocker, German hocker. Um, so the students had to carry it from classroom to classroom and to the canteen. So it had a handle and it had, of course, a platform for putting all your items, right? So you can put all your books and your models and you can trottle from classroom to classroom. And all of a sudden, and it had to be very simple to produce, um, almost like reed pearls made of a standardised um, sheet of timber that can be bought at the hardware store and a simple um, joining system and a broomstick for the, the support there. And all of a sudden you think, well, this is actually quite a clever object. Right? So this is why how design sometimes, so when you look at the objects here, you have to understand, you have to try and investigate a little bit more what, what they're about and what the thinking behind them is. Okay, this is a, a student project from 1958-59, um, and it's stackable tableware for um, the company Borsenthal. And it was designed by um, Hans Oberwischt, um, as I said, as his honours project. And the problem he said set himself, as I understand it, was to think about how how can you design for commercial kitchens? How can you design a system of tableware for commercial kitchens? So obviously it needed the appropriate aesthetic, so it looks nice on the table, um, very much of its time. Um, it had to be stackable so that it takes up less space within the commercial kitchens. Um, it had to be very stable when it's stacked. Um, it had to be designed in such a way that it could be easily mass-produced, that it comes out of the mould easily, so you need draft handles on it, you don't want undercuts. Um, and another thing you had to consider was, um, you know, how does it dry on a wick dishwasher? So as Dr. Martin, the curator, well explained, was that, you know, when the dishes and cups and sauces come out of the dishwasher, you don't want the kitchen hand to have to dry them. You want them to be designed in such a way that all the water runs off and they dry very easily. Otherwise they you know, require more time and, and they're not attractive to, to the proprietor of the, the restaurant. So again, a, a complex problem and, and of course they have to be strong when they drop that up break. And a complex design problem, okay? So it's not just the aesthetic of the object, how the object appears to us. It's again how the object was designed for the larger system. Um, and 
Also, of course, this aesthetic that it, it doesn't date. So unlike our Cadillac, um, as lovely as it is, it was designed to date. And these were produced um, up to the 19... When was it? The 1980s? Or no, much more recent. Um, anyway, I have to look it up. But they were pre produced to quite recently. And you can see if they're in a restaurant today, they don't look aged at all. They, they would fit in. Um, here we have a very famous product from, from Ulm. Um, it's the SK4 phonograph and radio from, from Braun, designed by Hans Gushelow and Dieter Rahns. And Hans Gushelow was one of the, the main design instructors and, and for my liking, one of the brilliant design minds within the school. Um, Braun um, was set up by the father of the Braun brothers um, as an electrical company. I, I won't go into the whole history, but um, by the 1950s he had retired and his sons took over the company and the sons wanted to reinvent the company. And they went to the Ulm School to, to seek help, to um, say, okay, we've got this idea of wanting to set up this new design business, um, you know, how do we go about it? And this was one of the first products that came out of it. Um, so up to this point, phonographs, how am I doing for time? Oops. Okay, now we're right. Up to this time, phonographs looked like pieces of furniture, you know, Rococo, Baroque, Art Deco, whatever. The, the technical aspect was really hidden, okay? It wasn't seen as attractive to sit in someone's house. Um, so that was sort of one of the first tasks they set themselves. How can we develop a new design aesthetic? Um, the other was they started to bring in these ideas of semiotics, early ideas of semiotics. Um, the arrangement of the buttons, the logic of how you push the buttons, and the shape of the buttons, so that the round buttons signal, okay, semiotics is sign language, signal a rotational movement, and so you turn them, and the square linear buttons signal a, an, a movement up and down in the axis, okay, so you push them down. So you immediately know how to interact with them. Um, we can also go to this idea of, of information graphics. So it's very much almost like a poster, if, if you think of it. If we look around later at, at some of the, the graphics and the information graphics, for instance, the ones designed for Lufthansa, um, is a very clear thinking about how do you read a graphic element? How, how does the eye move across um, a surface, you know, from the top down? Um, and so which, where would the on-off button be um, the logic of the, the tuning button is aligned with the visual element of the information that, you know, what station you're on. And if you look at it from this side, there's the, the speaker grills balance the other elements. The entire thing was designed around the golden section and so on. So it's almost designed like, like a poster would be designed. And again, this had not happened before. They had companies like IBM and that designing things within grids, 
but they weren't based on the idea of semiotics and intuition, how people actually read something, how people interact with, with something, with a, an object such as this. Also original was the Perspex cover, um, so that you can see the record playing, that that was part of sort of the performative element, rather than hiding the record. Normally you would have a big timber cover and you'd, you'd close it, pretend it's not there. Um, so this is some sort of a little bit of an um, explanation maybe how they, they started thinking about this idea of, of approaching design in a, in a systematic, rational way. And again, trying to avoid any styling elements, um, anything that would make it date as well. And also this idea of democratisation. So the object wasn't meant to look like a status symbol, even though in a way ended up becoming that, but that wasn't the, the intention. Um, so there's no chrome on it, there's no brass, there's no you know, space shuttle fins or something. Okay, it's, it's, it's meant to that, you know, you don't read it as a status symbol. Now, I'll come back to that idea of status symbols as well. And, and likewise, you know, with, with all the, the objects that they designed, they were thought of how can they fit across a society from sort of the more wealthy to the, the less wealthy. Or, you know, that they fit into everyone's home without being an object of desire as such. Again, the fact that it became an object of desire is because we're now reading it from outside of the system that it was designed for. Okay, we have a different system, so the system of the collector. Okay, It's an important design object and so it becomes a collectible, so it has different meanings now. Okay, so I'll, I'll talk about the end of Ulm. Should I move out of the corner, or is this okay? Okay, I'll stay here. Um, I'll talk about the end of Ulm, and then I'll move a little bit into after Ulm. So Ulm was a social, political, and educational experiment. And as such, it was bound to implode. Um, there were far too many cooks, and especially Ulm was within a, a small town, Germany. It was a small town, you know, maybe it was in Berlin, it would have been different. Um, but people were suspicious of what was going on in the school, what all these intellectuals were up to. Um, there started being infighting and there started being problems with funding. But, um, Ulm was a private design school, but as far as I understand it never asked for money from its students, it, it got money from the, the Scholl Foundation and it got money from, some money from the state and some money, quite a bit of money for a while, it made from commercial contracts. So the work it did with, with Braun and we see over here the work it did with Lufthansa, it developed the entire corporate identity for Lufthansa, including the interiors of the airplanes, the meal service, the logistics, um, so a, a huge project, but in the end it wasn't a design consultancy, it was a design school, and so it couldn't rely on the idea of being a consultancy, it couldn't have the academics designing for industry. 
and in many ways that wasn't right as well because that would have made giving them an unfair advantage to other designers. And so it had a funding crisis, but it also had an intellectual crisis. You know, where should design go? We already saw from Muxville to, um, to the second model, where it went from being about aesthetics. You know, if we make beautiful objects for society, society, it will, they somehow will serve society well. And then it went to this bigger idea of, of rationalisation, rational design, systematics, and so on. Um, okay. Um, Guy Bonseppi, so who was, I've talked about a little bit before, he was a designer and a student and teacher at Ulm, and there's a fantastic interview in the other room over there with him. Um, he, in the final issue of the old magazine in 1968, um, he wrote, there can be no place for environmental design in a view of culture that concentrates on education economically independent individuals and leaves society to care for itself. Um, so that was sort of the idea. They wanted to think about how you can have a socially, environmentally, ecologically responsible design Designers, of course, have to be responsible for econ economy as well. Companies have to make money, otherwise they can't produce. Um, and they need to earn money, but that wasn't the only goal. But that's sort of what the Ulm School was being criticised for, that they were focusing too much on these other ideals and not on the, the, the key core focus of the economy, which they were, others expected them to do. And so, again, in his words, in Guy's words, the wishful dream that a world of commodities might somehow grow rational turned out to be an illusion, but at the time a useful illusion. Okay, so that somehow rational, well thought out design can, can grow and can become an inherent part of society, and that this would sort of always continue, that it was the decisive model, that was an illusion. Um, But the idea of a democratisation of material culture continued to grow in strength, at least in Germany, but also in Northern Europe and Scandinavia, to the point where even Mercedes-Benz largely abandoned the use of chrome by the mid-80s. Okay, you might notice that, you know, the Mercedes-Benz before the 80s, well, you know, they weren't quite Cadillacs, they were much more rational, but they still had lots of chrome on them. They were status symbols. They were symbols of the bourgeoisie by the mid-80s, that became untenable in Germany. Okay, no one wanted to be driving around in a status symbol. No one wanted to be in German called a Schmarotzer. You know, this petty bourgeois. It was socially becoming unacceptable within society. And so likewise design followed suit. Um, Audi at the time, for example, they had no chrome whatsoever, and they were a high point of rationality. So it was simply considered no longer appropriate or fashionable to be seen in a bourgeois status symbol. Um, okay, that was then, and much of course has changed since then. Um, Berlin, 
has become an important export strategy even for German products and um, especially for emerging markets and many European manufacturers are now dancing to, to that tune. So a Mercedes of 2014 is no longer what it was in 1985 in, in its design context. Um, Ulm, of course, is no long, it's by no means can be seen as the sole cause of this drive of this idea that the democratisation of design within German design. But it did play an important role in formulating this. Um, okay, so there is also a very precarious state, the idea of rational product or a rational design. On the one hand, it is a model of limited economic possibilities requiring either an unsaturated market, such as I talked about before, or an ever-growing market. As a truly rational product, in the Ulm mold, it's also a very long-lasting product and requires a market that has an appetite for such design, an appetite often built, at least in part, as a myth, or on a myth. And, and we, we do have this myth of German design, German design, quality, engineering, rationality. In part, yes, there's a solid basis for it. In part, yes, it has become a myth, and the German economy is certainly milking that myth as hard as it can. Um, but on the other hand, it is getting increasingly difficult to define what rationality entails. It has indeed just become another symbol, perhaps a marketing tool. I need my Apple computer. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. Let's take Apple for an example. And, and if anyone, many people probably know that, that Apple have um, based their design around the Ulm model of design, around Dieter Rams and Braun. And if you look at it, it's a picture, there's my Cadillac. It's a picture of rationality, okay? It is a true ear of all design. And it looks very much like things that Dieter Rams and Braun produced in the 1960s. The way it's laid out, the materiality of it, the function of it, the quality of it, and even when you use it, the interface, the clarity of, of its use. It's all built around this idea of, of rational, well thought through, design, well laid out, the semiotics very well worked out. Semiotics was a big part of, of, of Apple with the, the folders and the, the icons, the desktop motives that, that of course everyone else copied since. Okay, so semiotics played a big part as well. I'll give that back to you. But, but, their marketing hype their constant upgrades, lack of serviceability, their entire corporate model, their outlandish profit they make with virtually no social return or responsibility, highly dubious production ethics and environmental credentials. All these undermine the concept of rationality to the point where they can be considered the antithesis of the Ulm model and socio-political intentions of the foundation of Ulm. So rationality in this sense cannot be taken out of the larger, higher ideal of democratisation and all that it entails. So it's not only democracy for the people who use it, but democracy 
and ethics for the people who produce it. Okay, and then what happens to the profits? And where does the tax go? Okay, we all know the stories in these big corporations. So again, we can't take the object out of the system. So if Apple is spoken about as an heir to woolen design and brawn design, it is really only in, in the semblance of the design, in the object itself, but not within the system that the object operates. Okay, in the end, I not only hold a lot of nostalgia for this period, even though I only lived in the post woolen period, but also true critical belief that in many ways they, they were onto something on the right track. Um, but the question is how do, you, how do you make such a system work, such a system of design? And Thomas um, Maldonado, who was the director at Ulm for a long time and a very important um, thinker connected to Ulm, um, this is his quote. At Ulm we believe in the design, in, sorry, in Ulm do we believe in the design, he puts exclamation marks around it. Seeking the absolute method, in hindsight that was not correct. Purely rational design, and he says what about play, what, you know, the, the playfulness of objects. Um, but to turn that question around, and he talks about, you know, what about the playfulness, the joy of objects that they give. Um, if all design is about play, who for? Who profits from this? Who pays and who suffers from this? So, Maldonado was very clear about you know, where design has now gone and, and the ethics that it sits within. And he says, I do not believe in the morality of objects, but I believe in the social responsibility of design and the role of design in consumerism. And to finish, I'll say that um, Guy Bonsiepi, who was the, um, one of the students and then also a teacher at Ulm and then became a designer um, in, in Brazil, raises the question of globalism. And so he asks the question, if everything is made somewhere else in the offshore factory, wherever that may be, then there is a possible loss of cultural multiplicity. And here comes very much then from the South American model, you know, what role does design play in where I started in actually building a culture? So not only social values, but also cultural values within that. Um, and that's where I'll finish. I can take some questions, maybe? Yep. Yeah. Yes, Susan. Where would you place the, the old model in terms of the, the vote for design thinking? Which we're, which okay, that's... Thank you for that. You that's, something that's something I wanted to talk about. So the the other part of the old model, which thanks Susan, I hadn't talked about so much, was the educational model, and that's where the old model lives on very much. And if we we look at this tower here, which I think it's, it's a library, and it's very important. It's about all the thinking and the books that were at all, or a, a small selection of them. And so all the model was this idea of the larger, deeper education of the design. And so the, the education of semiotics, of systems thinking, of mind mapping, all those sort of methods we teach today in design schools really have their ancestry back at school. 
And so that kind of the old model is very much alive and important. Um, so it wasn't invented at RMIT. <laughs> it wasn't. It was it was a uh, perfect size at RMIT. <laughs> it's not even a word. Very futuristic. I mean, it seems like the concepts they had and the systems yeah. they had would fit in very well today. They would, yeah. And I think what makes them this idea of futuristic or forward thinking was this idea of interdisciplinarity. And that's the other thing that's where say RMIT is really strong in, and I hope it grows in strength. It's this idea that you have many different disciplines coming together, working together. Um, so it's people staying maybe in the discipline. So Klaus Little was a mathematician and statisticist, but he sort of offered his thinking to the thinking of design for others to, to explore with him that idea. And I think this idea of it being a, a hothouse of intellectual activity is what made it so rich. And I think that's what's given it its longevity as well and its significance. Okay, so thank you very much and please join me in thanking Osman.